The town hall forum serves the larger community by providing space for voices of conscience to speak about key ethical issues. Today's forum is co-sponsored by the General Mills Foundation. Today's speaker is a physician and author of My, My Own Country, a doctor's story, Dr. Abraham Verghese. Born to Indian parents in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, Dr. Verghese currently serves as professor of medicine and chief of infectious diseases at the Texas Tech Health Services Center in El Paso, Texas. Following a residency at East Tennessee State Medical School and a fellowship at Boston City Hospital, Dr. Verghese returned to Johnson City, Tennessee in 1985 as an infectious disease specialist. It was there that he witnessed firsthand the rapid spread of AIDS among people of both gay and heterosexual orientation. His work with AIDS patients also introduced him to any number of gay men who had left the rural South for the cities in which they felt freer to be themselves and who were now coming home to die. At the urging of the editor of The New Yorker, Dr. Verghese began the account of his personal journey that would be named by Time magazine one of the top five books of 1994, My Own Country, A Doctor's Story. In a world where fear and hatred continue to wreak havoc on our communities, and where some of us secretly pay the price for all of us, Dr. Verghese tells the human story which reminds us that in the heartland of America, everything that affects one of us affects all of us. Speaking on the topic, communities respond to the AIDS crisis, please join me in welcoming to the Town Hall Forum Dr. Abraham Verghese. Thank you very much, Pastor Stewart, for that wonderful introduction. Good afternoon, everyone, both here in the forum and uh, listening on the radio. It's such an honor to be part of the wonderful tradition of the Westminster Town Hall Forum. I think that when I thought about how I would uh, put this talk together, it struck me that the best way of communicating to you the story of communities and the AIDS epidemic might be to read you passages from my book with a linking narrative, taking you through the book, and at the end, trying to extract what the meaning in this is for us in our own lives. The title of my book, My Own Country, is taken from a poem that I much admired called The Long Voyage by Malcolm Cowley from a collection called The Blue Junietta. And I'd like to read you the first stanza. Not that the pines were darker there, nor mid-May dogwood brighter there, nor swifts more swift in summer air. It was my own country. And I'm hopeful that as you go through this book, the title, My Own Country, will resonate for you at many different levels. Uh, for me, clearly it had to do with my sense, after having been born in Ethiopia of Indian parents and then educated in Ethiopia and India and then going to uh, Tennessee and Boston for my medical education, when I finally arrived in Tennessee, 
to settle, I had a distinct sense of having found the particular geography that would define my destiny, the particular place that would somehow allow me to be fully expressed and raise my children. And perhaps the most important quality about this place was the people. And I'd like to read you a brief section that, that captures what made the people of that area so special. My patients were earthy and appreciative and spoke a brand of English that made diagnosis a special challenge. Who knew that fireballs in the ovurus meant uterine fibroids? Or that smiling mighty Jesus meant spinal meningitis? Or that roaches in the liver meant cirrhosis? But soon high blood hypertension, low blood anemia, and even bad blood, syphilis, became part of my own vocabulary as I obtained a patient's medical history. JD, Essie, and the rest of my staff took it on themselves to not only feed me, but also to expand my Appalachian folk lexicon and coach me on the right way to talk country. I was a quick study. It became a challenge for them to find food that I would not eat. I enjoyed corn pone. I tolerated hominy grits. But I loved homemade biscuits, a great improvement on whopping biscuits, the frozen kind you whop on the refrigerator door to open. <laughs> I graduated to poke salad and tasted dry land fish and ramps. I tried and liked squirrel stew. Baked possum in a collar of sweet potatoes looked better than it tasted, while raccoon tasted better than it looked. Hog brain with scrambled eggs both looked and tasted wonderful. I hope none of you have just eaten. <laughs> in return for the incredible hospitality and the culinary treats, I would sometimes relent and crack my staff up with my mimicry of the regional accents of India. The nuances that differentiated a Punjabi accent from a Madrasi accent, from a Gujarati accent, were well appreciated by my staff. The physicians in the tiny community hospitals that served the scattered mining towns of Southwest Virginia, East Tennessee, and Kentucky were predominantly from India or the Philippines with a smattering of Pakistanis, Koreans, and Palestinians. The first time I arrived in that town to practice infectious disease, uh, about 1985, I was told by all the local pundits that I could expect to see very little HIV infection. The predictions for our town of 50,000 people was that I would see perhaps one HIV case every other year or so. And indeed, the first couple of years, my experience seemed to, to suggest that that might even be true. And I occupied myself in fairly traditional infectious disease physician activities, uh, infections in leukemics, infections in patients who were immunocompromised for other reasons, transplants and so on, tuberculosis. And I wanted to read you one such encounter from my office uh, in, the, in what I thought of as the pre-AIDS era in that town. Wednesday afternoon was my time to see private non-VA patients in the university physician's group office. One afternoon, I found myself in an exam room with Mrs. T, a prim and proper lady, belonging to what I thought of as the blue hair and mink stole society. 
She exuded the permanence of colonnades and war memorials. I often saw her typeheading for church on Sunday mornings while I made my way to the Kiwanis Park tennis courts. Mrs. T was in her early 50s, handsome and slender. She kept her fur-collared jacket on during our interview. I blame the Chanel No. 5 perfume she wore for lulling me into inattention, so much so that when she pulled out the envelope, whose torn end was much folded over and held with a paper clip, and when she said there was something she wanted to show me, I almost let her spill the envelope's contents onto the paper runway of the examining table before I cried, Hold it, ma'am. Do you mind if I peek into the envelope first? When I looked within, all I saw were tiny brown particles. She had referred to them as growths, growths that she had extracted from her pubic hair. But just as I feared, the little boogers were moving. Take a look, ma'am, I said. Do you see how they are alive? Mrs. T turned pale. She brought her glasses up from the chain on her neck and peered into the slit of the envelope with me. Now her hand came to her mouth. I thought they were moving, she said, but then I thought it was my glasses or that I was dizzy or something. Those are crab lice, ma'am. Uh, do you itch? I itch something awful. Blood was now rushing to her face and I felt sorry for her embarrassment. My guess was that her husband had given it to her. I took a deep breath and asked, is your husband itching too? I doubt it, Mrs. T said, lifting her head up bravely, looking me in the eye a firmness and resolve coming to her face. No, I'm the one that's itching. I'm responsible for getting it. Then, after a pause, she said, if you would prescribe for me the appropriate treatment, I would be very grateful. There was a question I had to ask, a question that despite my several years now in infectious diseases, I found myself embarrassed to ask this refined lady. Uh, Ma'am, um, is it your practice to use a, a condom with your uh, partner? Yes, she said, almost in a whisper, turning red again, her eyes examining the back of her hands. She looked up now, a little sparkle in her eye. But it didn't help me, did it? What could I have done to prevent getting this? Worn a raincoat? Her face broke into a wonderful smile, and I had to laugh. The tension in the room was dissipated. Think of it this way, ma'am. The condom did work. It may have prevented things like gonorrhea, syphilis, AIDS... She turned pale when I said AIDS. Oh, Lord. If you like, I can test you for these things. She shook her head. Then don't worry, I said. The crab lice we shall take care of forthwith. Uh, shall I prescribe a double dose, one for your partner? That won't be necessary, she said. As far as I'm concerned, I hope they eat him alive. As it turned out, though, the predictions that I would see very little HIV in the town turned out to be quite incorrect. And I began to see a fairly steady trickle of patients into my office. First one, then a couple of weeks later, another one. Then it became a weekly event. Then it became two patients a week. And I began to have the, the sense that I had stumbled onto something quite unique. And I wanted to describe one of these encounters to you, perhaps not a typical one, in fact, quite atypical, but someone who lingers in my memory as a real hero of this story. And in the book, I refer to her as Vicki McRae. Her husband was Clyde McRae. And Clyde was a truck driver, 
And Vicky had noticed that Clyde was having increasing trouble keeping his schedules of deliveries and so on. Uh, in fact, she noticed that Clyde was spending a good bit of his time sitting on the sofa, on the sofa and playing with the remote control all day. Now, some of you are thinking, well, that doesn't sound too different from my spouse. But what made this so unique was, in addition to that, he was hiccuping continuously. He hiccuped for days and days and days on end. Uh, he'd been taken to the doctor several times, and finally, for reasons that I'm not entirely clear about, someone got an HIV test, which came back positive. And at that point, I was called in to see him. So I pick up the story uh, at that point. Vicki McRae was a large woman whose usual attire was blue jeans and an oversized man's shirt. Though she might have appeared benign in a hospital corridor, her appearance would have been unmistakably threatening if one encountered her in a dark alley. Thick forearms swung loosely alongside her hips. You could picture those forearms holding two babies and a sack of groceries, or you could picture them locked around your head in a full Nelson. The first year I knew her, Vicky always wore a red polka-dotted bandana wrapped tight over her scalp and low over her forehead. As a result, the skin over her eyebrows was bunched up and her blue eyes appeared deeply recessed, deeply recessed in her skull. Her eyes were her prettiest features. When I went to Clyde's hospital room, I found Vicky there with him. I had read through the chart and I would understood the medical elements of the case, but the story of this couple wasn't in there. I prefaced my interview by, by, by telling both Vicky and Clyde that I was going to ask personal and touchy questions that were not meant to offend, only to leave no stone unturned. Vicky was standing next to the head of the bed, her hand protectively on Clyde's shoulder. She regarded me with curiosity and suspicion this foreign doctor, this infection specialist. I, in turn, was quite intimidated by her. Um, has he ever used intravenous drugs, I asked. No, Vicky answered without even looking at Clyde for confirmation. Um, has he ever had sex with another man? Hell no, said Vicky. Hell yes, said Clyde from behind her. What? Yes, Clyde said again. Vicky looked at Clyde, her jaw, her, her jaw dropping, anger flashing in her eyes. He don't know what he's saying. They've pumped him full of Thorazine. Don't pay him no mind. It's the Thorazine what does him that way. I've had sex with men, Clyde said again, with Jewel all the time. He clammed up after that shocker, tuning both of us out in the manner of a peevish two-year-old. He began to play with the remote, clicking through the channels until Vicky snatched it from him, at which point he pulled the sheet over his head and lay still like a mummy. Evidently, Clyde was telling the truth. Uh, he, had, he was suffering from AIDS dementia, and one of the earliest signs of dementia is that your ability to repress things that you and I would normally repress uh, had gone away, and he came out with this unabashed, startling admission. We then tested Vicky, and on her instructions, we tested her sister, because Vicky had knowledge that Clyde had had an affair with the sister and had probably fathered one child with the sister. And when I finally met that child, I had no doubts in my mind that Clyde was the father. Uh, to our great disappointment, uh, Vicky's test came back positive, as did her sister's. 
I never saw the sister again. She declined to have anything further to do uh, with, uh, with us. And she actually died an accidental death, totally unrelated to this. I pick up the story a week or so after seeing Clyde and getting Vicky's test back. I pick up the story at the point where I've scheduled Vicky to come into the office to be examined for me to, dis to, for me to determine where exactly she is on the trajectory of this virus. I'm examining her with my, with my nurse, Carol, in attendance. I began to examine Vicky with Carol in attendance. This was the first time I had needed a chaperone with an HIV patient. I went through Vicky's social history and family history and past history, much of which I already knew. Vicky had been under treatment off and on by a local psychiatrist for nerves. She was taking a blood pressure pill and despite that her blood pressure was high. I looked carefully into her retina to see if she had narrowing of the vessels or hemorrhage that might suggest the high blood pressure had been present for a long time. Her retina looked normal. Vicky balked when I asked her to remove the bandana knotted over her scalp and low over her brow. I told her I needed to go over her from head to foot. Her lower lip began to tremble and tears formed in her eyes. I'm real ashamed about this, she said. Very reluctantly, she began to unknot the bandana, pausing once as if she had changed her mind. I could see beneath the bandana that she was totally bald. Carol, my nurse, looked puzzled. I did it, Vicky said. Vicky had picked out every hair on her scalp herself. This was called trichotillomania, a compulsive disorder, an indication of her extreme psychological distress. Carol and I were affected by this sight, this outwardly tough woman who had picked herself bald because of the hell she was going through, a hell that had preceded Clyde's getting ill. We reassured her, told her we understood, I was pleased to find that she seemed in fine physical health except for the elevated blood pressure. Carol and I stood by as Vicky retied the bandana. As the years went on, I began to accumulate more and more cases and I began to have the distinct sense that I was dealing with two diseases. On the one hand, there was the virus, but on the other hand, there was this metaphor of shame and secrecy that traveled with the virus. And at least in one instance, I felt I lost a patient to the metaphor. The patient had been killed by the metaphor. Uh, I, I saw him, diagnosed him, he was entirely well, but he shot himself. And uh, he shot himself at a time when the virus was doing nothing. And I began to feel as though I was the head of a secret society and only I knew who the members of the society were. And I also began to feel an increasing sense of isolation from my fellow physicians in the town, who by and large were content to see me take over this problem. And uh, when I needed their help, they, they were there, but subtly I, I began to feel that I had been sort of pushed into some sort of purgatory. The metaphor had spilled over onto me, if you will. I wanted to read you a passage that expresses this frustration, this sense of isolation, the fact that the town doesn't, doesn't reg register the problem. AIDS, 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 the words seem to inform my every action. Like barnacles on a ship's hull, the stories of the Scotties, the Clydes, and the Otises of the town clung to me. 
Here we were in our corner of East Tennessee, the embodiment of small-town America, 72 churches watching over the flock, the perfect symmetry of the Lions and Kiwanis Club and Rotary Club with their staggered meeting dates. Our town had its minor celebrities, the TV weather woman who did Zach's furniture ads on the side, the sports anchor, a white man imitating the dress and manners of Bryant Gumbel, the young schoolteacher who had won big bucks on Jeopardy and put us on the map for one night. And wherever you were, be it on the high end of this matrix, in a Carl Jones four Victorian house on a double lot in round tree, sitting in your jacuzzi in the master bath, looking over your Japanese garden, or else if you were the proud possessor of a double wide trailer in a south side trailer park, you still viewed the town with a certain satisfaction a certain sense of being insulated from all the foolishness you saw on TV. Subway vigilantes, mass murders, drive-by shootings, AIDS. AIDS simply did not fit into this picture we had of our town. The TV stations and the Johnson City Press did a fine job of parroting what the wire services carried about AIDS, but they never succeeded in treating the deaths of Rock Hudson and Liberace as being any more significant to our town than famine in the Sahel or a plane crash in Thailand. You could shop in the mall, cut your hair in parks and belk, pick up milk in the Piggly Wiggly, bowl at Holiday Lanes, find body entertainment at the Hourglass Lounge, and never know that one of my patients was seated right next to you or serving you, or brushing past you in the parking lot, a deadly virus in his or her body that was no threat to you, but might nevertheless cause you to stand up and scream if you knew how close it was. My problem was the opposite. I saw AIDS everywhere in the fabric of the town. I wanted to pick up a megaphone as I stood in a checkout line and say, Attention, Kmart shoppers! Johnson City is a part of America, and yes, we do have AIDS here. It became very clear to me towards the tail end of my stay in that town, after about five years, that I had stumbled onto a fairly unique paradigm to explain the large numbers of HIV-infected persons I was seeing in the town. And the paradigm goes something like this. Young man grows up in a small town and leaves for all the same reasons you and I leave small towns. Jobs, education, opportunities. But in their case, they were also often leaving because they were gay and could not live that life under the close scrutiny of friends, neighbors, relatives, and so on. And this had been a silent exodus that had been going on for years and years and years, drawing very little attention. They arrived in the big cities and found themselves, began to live the way they wanted to live, no longer fearful of the kind of intense scrutiny that a hometown involves. And tragically, even as they found themselves, the virus found them. And they were now coming back to the small towns because of loss of a job, loss of a lover, increasing illness. And there we were at the tail end of this migration, seeing patients in unanticipated numbers. And I want to read to you about this, this patient who I remember very distinctly his death because it was the moment for me when this whole thing crystallized. And it was the moment when I, when I knew that this incredible tale had to, be, 
had to be put down and, uh, and captured, both the suffering of these young men, their heroism, and that of their families. And the patient I call Hobart uh, had left the town very, very early, as soon as he could. And one of his earliest recollections is of, of being different. He remembers walking through the schoolyard with his sister one time, and his sister turning to him and saying, don't walk that way. And he was not conscious that he walked in a way that was different. And uh, he just had the sense of not belonging, and he quickly left. Eventually wound up in San Francisco where he had a wonderful job in a hotel. Um, I saw pictures of his job. He was always in a tuxedo, loved it. One morning, he woke up with chest pain and noticed a bunch of vesicles on his chest, went to the San Francisco General Hospital, was told he had shingles, and in short order was admitted, and there was a cascade of catastrophes, and he was there for six weeks, and also found out that he was HIV positive. When he came back out, the job was gone. His apartment he'd been evicted from. His things were in the basement of a friend's apartment, a friend who was also sick and in the hospital. And it's very difficult for us to sit here and imagine the absolute devastation that took place in gay communities in that period of time, and continues. And so he made the call to his parents saying he was coming home after so many years. Not a happy homecoming on either side. I pick up the narrative there. If the move back was hard on his parents, it was hell for Hobart. He was once again in the same family environment, the same town that he had once felt imprisoned by. The boyhood room where he had once dreamed of a different life now held him again within its walls. The crucifixes in every room, the framed needlepoint verses in the bathroom and kitchen, the giant somewhat gaudy rendering of Christ at Gethsemane that dominated the living room all harked back to a childhood that had been difficult. His apartment in San Francisco had been like his vision of the world his art objects, his framed and signed Mapplethorpe print, his color scheme and furnishings, all these affirmations of his own identity sat in a friend's basement, a friend who was also sick and might have to vacate soon. Shortly after Hobart came to uh, East Tennessee, he became ill with a high, high fever, and I put him in the hospital, and I exhausted every resource I had to try and find out what the cause of the fever was and could not. And at a certain point, he had enough and said, no more, I'm just going to go home and, and die. And I couldn't in good faith argue that he should do otherwise. Uh, it would have been cruel to keep on punishing him with these tests. And a few weeks before he died, he called me uh, to say, uh, Abraham, I know that you really struggle to find out what the cause of this fever is. When I die, I don't want an autopsy, but if you want to, you can come to my house and take biopsies of my organs and that way you'll know what happened. And I pick up the narrative at that point. A few days after Hobart and I had our talk, Mr. Carter visited me to tell me that his son was fading rapidly. Mr. Carter, who was a preacher, picked up a prescription for morphine solution to help Hobart rest. Hobart would ask his father to come and lie down with him and hug him just as when he was a little boy. They would stay that way for hours. He said to his father one day, Daddy, I love you. I hope you never grow old and die. Mr. Carter replied, If I die today, son, I don't mind. Because of my belief in the Lord, I feel I will never die. 
What about you, Hobart? Is everything all right with you and the Lord? Daddy, it was not for the longest time, but now it is. It was at this point that he called his brother Jake in Germany and asked him for forgiveness. Jake was puzzled. Forgiveness for what? Forgiveness for everything I have done to you. He made a similar phone call to me to ask me to excuse him from any grief he had caused me, and I assured him he had caused me none. On a Saturday morning, I was on the tennis court when the call came that Hobart had died. I went over to the hospital and picked up some true-cut biopsy needles and small bottles of formalin. This was his idea. In death, he had wanted to give me some clues as to what had gone on from an infectious disease point of view. I drove to the house in Bristol where the Carters lived, a 30-minute drive. Outside the house, children were playing. They paused to watch me enter the Carter's home. Did they know a death had taken place? Did they know a child like them had attempted an escape, tried to create a new life just a few years, but after just a few years had it cut short? The house was neatly furnished with a gleaming white sofa in the living room and pictures of Hobart and Jake on the coffee table. Mr. Carter rose to greet me, gracious as ever. Praise the Lord, doctor, he's out of his misery, he said to me. Mrs. Carter sat heavily on the couch. She looked up at me but said nothing. In his bedroom, Hobart lay on his, bike, on his, on his back, his head slightly to one side, his mouth open, his eyes open. His fringe of hair had grown long and wispy since I last saw him. I pulled the sheet away from his body, which was lean and emaciated. The unremittent fever had consumed the body, burnt it down to the stringy remnant. There was the sound, the loud sound of sobbing in the next room and the sounds of children playing outside. Hobart's face was incredibly sad, the eyebrows raised quizzically. I put on gloves, I percussed down his chest to find the liver, and I settled on an interspace between two ribs. I pushed the biopsy needle in, felt it pop through skin and slide into liver. I advanced the hollow inner blade, pulled the whole thing out and held the needle tip over the bottle of formalin. A tiny worm-like core of tissue slid out of the needle into the bottle. A small victory here. This virus had killed Hobart, but it was not going anywhere from here but to formalin or to the crematorium. That night I went home and I basically wrote out this paradigm. I drew two maps of where my patients now lived and where they had come from. And it was clear to me that they were coming from all the big cities of the United States back to our small town. I published that as a paper in the Journal of Infectious Disease. It was the first description of this paradigm. But even as I wrote it, I knew that uh, there was a much more compelling story, the heartbreaking story of these young men, their struggle to escape from the small towns, and the cruel, cruel tragedy of what awaited them in the big city. There was a story of the families, of the communities, who rallied around them. There was the story of meaning that everyone, including myself, seemed to extract from this. And I'm going to close by speaking briefly to that point and then turn this open for questions. I have a feeling that if my book was merely a collection of poignant and tragic tales about AIDS, it wouldn't be getting the sort of attention that I'm, I'm so grateful it is getting. I think the reason it's getting the attention is because there is a lesson in these stories for all of us. 
And let me see if I can explain that lesson to you. All of you in this room, and all of you listening to me on the radio, we're all going to die. Time. In fact, we spend the better part of our time not thinking about it. However, when you find out you have HIV in your system, you suddenly realize that you have a finite time to live, more finite than you ever thought, maybe anywhere from 2 to 12 years. And it has a strange effect of compressing life, as though you've been scooped off the street and put in a crucible and everything's been compressed and there's a fixed number of enzymes and substrates in there and it's all going to play out very quickly. And in that compressed crucible, every human emotion becomes exaggerated. But one emotion in particular becomes paramount. It's the emotion that asks, what has been the meaning of my life? Again, this is something that you and I ask from time to time, but we spend the better part of our existence not asking this question. But on your deathbed, you, you, you demand that of yourself. What has been the meaning of my life? And it's amazing to me, having looked into these compressed lives, this compressed crucible, how consistent the answer is when people look for meaning. The meaning doesn't reside, doesn't reside in fame or fortune or reputation or money or status. People come back again and again, again and again to meaning residing in the successful relationships, particularly with family, that they've managed to negotiate. The loving relationships where they've given love and received love, this is what they hold as having been of value. I can't tell you in how many cities now that I've practiced in, I've had a young man tell me, Abraham, I would never wish this disease on anybody, including myself. But in a funny way, it's the best thing that happened to me. I would not have known the love of my father, or my mother, or my brothers. I would have waited till my father was ill in another city and flown down there, been there for the funeral, and never have understood that this, of all the things in my life, this was the thing that I would value the most. I struggle to explain this and I don't think I do it very well, but recently I got a letter from a mother whose son died of AIDS and she sent me a letter that the son had sent to her arranging that she get it after he died. And he'd lived with her and she'd nursed him and took good care of him. This letter makes the point so much better than I do and I'm going to read the letter and stop with that. Um, again, this is a letter from the son to the mother. Dear son, I'm sorry, dear mom, Dear mom, this last part of my life could have been very unpleasant, but it wasn't. In fact, in many ways, it has been the best part of my life. I've had the opportunity to get to know my family again, a chance very few people have or take advantage of. I've enjoyed a life full of adventure and travel, and I enjoyed every instant of it. But I probably never would have slowed down enough to really appreciate all of you if it hadn't been for this illness. That's the silver lining in this very dark cloud. I've had so full and satisfying a life that it seems almost tacky, mom, for me to express any regrets. Nevertheless, there are some things I wish I could have done. Number one, I'd love to have been mayor of Key West. Number two, and he goes on with a long wish list like this. When you get right down to it, mom, I'd have to live several hundred years to fulfill all the dreams I've had. I've done pretty well with the time allotted me, so I have no regrets. I feel sorry for people who die at whatever age, 
who haven't had the chance in life to fulfill some of their dreams as I've had. That's the real tragedy. Mom, if anyone ever asks you if I went to heaven, tell them this, I just came from there. No place could conceivably be as wonderful as where I've spent these last 39 years. I'll miss it, I'll miss you. I'm so glad we made good use of this time to get to know each other again. Ladies and gentlemen and listeners out there, please make good use of your time. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Verghese. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from the Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis. To get today's speaker is Dr. Abraham Verghese, who has just spoken on the subject, Communities Respond to the AIDS Crisis. Dr. Verghese currently serves as Professor of Medicine and Chief of Infectious Diseases and Geriatrics at Texas Tech University in El Paso, Texas. Today's forum is co-sponsored by the General Mills Foundation. The ushers will now collect the questions here in the hall. Those of you who are listening on the radio may call in a question by dialing 332-3421. 332-3421. Dr. Verghese, if you would please return to the podium, we will begin with the questions. As both a, a physician and now as an author, would you tell us something about how the book came to be written and, the, and specifically the mechanics by which you wrote the book? I wrote this book while practicing as a full-time physician, doing the very work that I'm, I'm writing about. And I wrote it in the early mornings uh, from about 4 to 7.30 and then I would scramble to shave and shower and get to the hospital. And in a curious way, I'm not sure that I could have done it any other way. If I had uh, six months off in a log cabin by the river, I'm not sure that this same book would have emerged. In a funny way, the things I wrestled with in my writing were sometimes mysteriously answered by a chance encounter with someone in the hospital. And the converse was true. I was often trying to explain something to a student or, a, or another physician that I was training, and something in the writing would, would illuminate that. Uh, I look back on the writing of this book in a, as an especially magical time, and uh, I'm not even sure quite right now quite how I did it, but uh, it seems to me that writing has often to come out of the work, and uh, being immersed in the work and then writing from it seemed to give it uh, some added power. One person asks, uh, Dr. Verghese, you are a master storyteller both in nonfiction and fiction. I appreciated your New Yorker story, Lilacs. Are you currently working on another book, and is it fiction or nonfiction? I've been working on a novel for several years. Uh, unfortunately, I can't get anyone to be interested in it. I think one of the things that happens when you've written nonfiction and it's gotten a little attention is that you're pegged into the slot of a nonfiction writer. Uh, but I, I uh, have decided that I won't show that novel to anyone till it's complete and let it speak for itself. I'm currently working on the novel as well as on a second book 
that is tentatively called the tennis player. Uh, about a year ago, a dear friend of mine, my best friend, uh, killed himself. He was a doctor and he was a professional, almost a professional tennis player before he went to medical school. And uh, he, re he had relapsed into intravenous cocaine addiction, something he'd been free of for many years. The book is going to be about male friendship, drugs, doctors, and society. Uh, and it's going to use the, the construct of the tennis match, tennis being a metaphor for life, uh, as, its, as its structure, so to speak. So that's what I'm working on right now. What has happened to Vicky? <clears throat> Vicky is uh, very much alive and is an example of what I meant by finding meaning out of this horrible illness. Uh, Vicky not only forgave her husband, but nursed him through his illness. Uh, her hair grew back entirely. She moved out of the little hollow she was in. And perhaps most significantly, she entered nursing school. She's now in her last semester. Uh, the whole lesson of this was that she had decided that it had shown her that her purpose in life was to take care of people. And uh, she may never finish nursing school. She is quite healthy now, but the signs are there that it may not continue much longer. I speak with her almost every week. Uh, but to me, she is, you know, she's an absolutely inspiring person who has emerged from a, a strata of society that most people dismiss as not having anything to offer them, nothing you could learn there. But I have learned more from Vicky McRae than I have learned from uh, uh, many, many articulate and better educated people. Can you tell us more about your own transformation personally as well as as a physician as you came to know the private lives of your patients? Well, I think I began this book as uh, someone very ignorant about gay men. I, I won't say I was homophobic as much as I was homo-ignorant. And I've come out the other end with not just a sense of empathy because that, won't, that doesn't cut it, that's not enough. I've come out with a strong sense of regret that it took a disease like this for me to appreciate how much I could learn about being a man from gay men. I have a feeling, particularly when I'm around uh, the gang culture in El Paso, the macho Hispanic gang culture, that so much of what passes for heterosexual maleness really isn't maleness at all. It's a, it's a posturing males engage in for what they think women want to see. And uh, I think gay men open us up to the possibilities of what else maleness can be. And I'm not speaking of their sexual activities, I'm speaking of their willingness to be good friends to women, of their willingness to explore the arts in fashions that heterosexual men consider, you know, not macho and so on. So that has been one element of my transformation. The other is the recognition that even when I could offer nothing with this disease, in a strange sort of way, I had a lot to offer. Uh, I found myself stepping across the threshold of the traditional medical complex with all its suites and realizing that uh, even with all our diagnostic technology and so on, the old-time physician who had none of that 50, 60, 70 years ago had more power and presence at the bedside than any physician today, despite not having the tools. And I think that AIDS taught me that that is where the battle is to be won or lost, is at the bedside, in the patient's homes. I've begun to understand the distinction between healing and curing. Even when you cannot cure a disease, you can bring about a healing, which is to say a sort of coming to terms, physician, family, and patient, with what's going on. Uh, so it's been a, a transforming 
experience for me and for physicians of my generation who entered infectious disease. I don't mean to in any way sound as though I had a unique experience. Some of it was unique. Much of it is generational. My generation of infectious disease physicians, many of us have made the same transition. Thank you. One member of the audience asks whether you see any analogous pattern in heterosexual transmission of HIV. You know, heterosexual transmission of HIV remains uh, a misunderstood entity. We keep hearing statistics of how heterosexual AIDS is on the rise. Um, heterosexual AIDS is on the rise, but it's mostly on the rise in women who are getting it from infected men. And in that sense, I think that needs to be corrected. I'm not sure if the questioner is, is hinting at that or if they're asking about the paradigm of migration. I think they mean the paradigm. Yeah, I think that we, we did see a number of people who had acquired this disease heterosexually, uh, so to speak, and uh, had come back home, but they were simply overshadowed and uh, over, you know, the, the numbers of people who were coming back having acquired it by being gay and uh, having lived in a big city at the wrong time, uh, w there were many more numbers of those. There's a question here from the radio listening audience. The caller is from India and asks how serious is the spread of HIV AIDS in India? Is anything being done about it? Uh, the, the problem in India is so serious that I can't even begin to describe it to you. I think it's even more serious in Africa where at our best estimate 20 million people may carry the virus. Uh, how do you begin to talk about AIDS in Africa or India when the cost of the test is more than the per capita income of, of a country? How do you begin to talk about treatment when uh, you know, the national budget of a country might be exceeded by the, national by the budget of a major research center like you have in this city? Uh, where does one begin? I was in India a few months ago, and um, they're certainly doing their best with AIDS education and so on. Uh, but I think that uh, very much like Thailand, the disease has spread quickly through the brothels of Bombay and so on. And uh, I, I have no doubt that AIDS will change the face of this world, very much like things we worry about, like the ozone layer and jungle deforestation. More than that, it will just accentuate the huge differences between countries like ours that have and countries that do not have. And the impetus to, to share will be no longer something about generosity, it'll be about uh, human need, you know, can we just stand by and watch people suffer? Uh, I, I worry politically and historically what AIDS will do to the, the face of this world. One person asks, have you noticed any difference in how AIDS is perceived in El Paso as compared with Johnson City? I think that things have definitely changed in the way AIDS is perceived. This book is almost now about a nostalgic period in our history of AIDS. Uh, I am blown away by medical students nowadays who don't bat an eyelid when it comes to AIDS. Uh, they've uh, heard about it since high school, fully expecting to see it, and they see it, and it's not a big deal for them. Uh, it was a big deal for us at the time when it first came about. I find that people are much more open to the idea of it, more generous. Uh, people are finding out the secret of how much satisfaction you get from volunteering in this area. Uh, but even as things changed in, in the big cities, in small towns like Johnson City, the metaphor of shame and secrecy uh, remains a huge one, and it will take many, many years to chip away at that. 
And the fundamental problem, the reason for that metaphor, is basically our inability as a society to come to terms with homosexuality. Until we do that, the metaphor will continue to remain. To follow up that last statement, one person asks, how do other cultures look at homosexuality? Do they look at it differently? Well, other cultures uh, had a different AIDS, AIDS experience. In this country, uh, the nature of this virus was such that it, like many other sexually transmitted diseases, it began in gay society not because of anything special they were doing, but because of the fairly close-knit nature of that society. It became most apparent there. In countries like Africa, the male-to-female ratio of, of AIDS is one-to-one. -one. It spreads very efficiently in every way, and the whole issue of gay lifestyle never became uh, the sort of uh, topic that it's become in this country. So it's almost a non-issue elsewhere. Elsewhere, it's a sexually transmitted disease that's fatal. In this country, it's a sexually transmitted disease that's fatal with a horrible metaphor that travels with it. Uh, a brief answer to this question and then one final question. Uh, how do you feel about the way Ryan White money has been administered? Well, uh, there must be someone out there who's reading my mind because one of my deep disappointments as I watch what I call the, the sort of uh, the changing face of AIDS response. It's become almost a corporate response. Ryan White Money has given us offices and organizations and buses with banners on them and uh, a sort of a nine to five mentality when this is not a nine to five disease. And I worry about the proportion of Ryan White fines in my town that's going for overhead. Uh, that's going for salaries of people who, who push forms and uh, seem to be giving people a hard time. And I worry that at some point we'll create uh, the problems that we complain about in the welfare system. And uh, I wish there was a way to continually reevaluate the money and give it to uh, people right there at the front line. Increasingly difficult to do. But I know in your city and in mine, there continue people who uh, continue to be people who do their thing week to week, uh, begging money and basically every cent of it goes to deliver the service. And I, I shudder when I think that 40% of Ryan White money sometimes is going into overhead. Mm. What does that mean? Thank you. You speak of the frustration in your writings, uh, the frustration of n not being able to do anything other than to hold people's hands as they draw near death, but you also have said that there is salvation because you are forced to confront what it is to be a doctor. My last question would be, would you just uh, take an opportunity to, to elaborate on that statement? I think that we've begun to recognize in medicine that there's a distinction between healing and curing. The best analogy is if you've ever had your house robbed and the police come back and give you the stuff that's been taken away in, about a, few, in a few hours, you've been cured, but you've not been healed. You still feel violated. I think that medicine has been obsessed with cure to the neglect of healing. And even when you cannot cure, there's a vital role for doctors to play in simply being there, in simply helping people to come to terms with all our mortalities, but especially their mortality. The lesson of AIDS for me has been one of humility, a sense of how little I can do, and yet how much I can do by simply being there, and how much you can do by simply being there too. Dr. Verghese, we thank you for your voice of care and compassion. 
and for reminding us to rise above fear and stereotype to embrace the members of our community who otherwise will remain members of a secret society. We thank you for being here and we thank all of you for joining us today at the Town Hall Forum.